We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined on the telephone today by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And from Taichung by Donovan Smith. And it's great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing more power outages and the island's first fully professional basketball league wrapping up its inaugural season this week. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan this week when the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Wednesday raised its coronavirus alert level to level three island-wide after recording over 100 locally transmitted cases for the fifth consecutive day. The Central Epidemic Command Centre announced a ban on all arrivals except citizens and legal residents also this week and that's currently slated to remain in effect until June the 18th and schools island-wide have now been closed until at least May the 28th. But of course all that could change basically and those time frames could be extended health officials are now setting up more coronavirus testing stations at places frequented by people who have been confirmed to have contracted the virus the epidemic command center has explained that it chose those specific locations as they could be the source of the infection spread or simply places that a lot of cases visited and as a result of that have become areas of risk and authorities are stressing that only people who have been into contact with coronavirus cases were in the same place at the same time as confirmed cases or have symptoms of the virus should be tested and they are stressing that if you don't fall into those categories do not visit the testing sites meanwhile the ministry of foreign affairs this week announced that it's trying to secure more coronavirus vaccines from the united states and that statement follows comments by u.s president joe biden who announced that america will be sending 20 million vaccine doses overseas by the end of june meanwhile another 400,000 doses of the astrazeneca coronavirus vaccine from the global covax vaccine sharing program arrived in taiwan on Wednesday. Now, interestingly though, a Taiwan-developed Chinese medicine formula used alongside Western medicine to treat coronavirus patients could be approved for use in Taiwan as early as, well, late to next week, basically. The medicine known as NRICM101 was developed last year by the Ministry of Health's National Research Institute of Chinese Medicine and a team of clinical practitioners using a mixture of 10 traditional ingredients. The Tri-Services General Hospital, the Changong Memorial Hospital and several other medical institutions here have been using the formula as part of a combined therapy for some coronavirus patients and the health ministry says the results of those tests have been largely positive and if all that wasn't enough well cabinet spokesman law bing jung this week said that national security agencies are investigating whether beijing is mounting a coronavirus disinformation campaign against taiwan amid increasing public concern about the rising cases. Now, according to law, there have been recent instances of China seeking to spread false information, both via social media and mainstream media, which appears to be aimed at undermining public trust in the government's handling of the pandemic. Examples of the disinformation include articles calling on local government heads to directly contact Chinese officials to secure vaccines. And reports on social media have included exaggerating the number of confirmed cases and claims that the disinfectant being used in areas considered to be coronavirus hotspots is highly toxic and while people here have taken to wearing face masks over the past year officials are saying that hundreds of people island-wide are facing fines for flouting the not wearing face masks in public rule since the level three coronavirus alert was introduced this week but we'll begin brian of course the coronavirus hotspot in taipei where the testing stations are is one and of course you're sitting there at home right now that's right. And so I am actually sitting right across from the block where all the tea parlors where this uh, infection, this outbreak, as we believe to have begun, are actually. 
And so every morning, actually, just from my window, I can see the testing site at Bopilau. Usually there's quite a line before 8 a.m. And then once the testing site actually opens, the line quickly disappears. And so it's been quite an interesting few days. I mean, I've seen, for example, the disinfections uh, just announced at night uh, through loudspeakers saying that the next day there's going to be disinfection of the entire area of Wampa being carried out. And so it's been an interesting time to be here. Um, there's particular concern about, for example, just the uh, sex worker population. Uh, many are migrant workers, uh, some illegal. As a result, people not, may not be willing to come forward about their travel history, where they have been, or they are working. Uh, similarly, there is a sizable homeless population. Wapa is believed to have the majority of the homeless population in Taipei. As a result, um, homeless population is perhaps not always aware of what's going on in terms of uh, disease prevention. Oftentimes, don't, they don't have masks, or they don't like to wear masks. It's hard to maintain hygiene. And so there have been local efforts to distribute masks to them as well as food. But there's also concern then that the city government's action could actually have these uh, have been a negative effect on these vulnerable populations. And so for now, I'm not traveling anywhere. I think it's better to stay in Wahua, um, which is part of the reason why, of course, I'm sitting at home here today and not in the studio. Uh, but it's just also unusual because this is an area that has been oftentimes not particularly covered or focused in on in uh, coverage of Taipei. It's generally thought to be the area that's been sort of left behind by development, yet this is now in the center of public attention. And so this is a kind of odd reversal in past days. I mean, are you, are you going outside? Um, not at all. I'm trying to stay at home primarily. Um, there are enough businesses still operating that, for example, I could do takeout if I need a food. Uh, I'm doing that or I'm doing uh, ordering uh, Uber Eats and so forth. Right. And so I think it's pretty good to avoid travel for now. Right. What about the testing stations? Because they've been saying that if you, if you live in the area where the, where the outbreak has been centred, you should go and get tested. And if you don't, don't get tested. But obviously you live across the road. So do you consider yourself someone that shouldn't get tested? Yeah, I mean, they're emphasizing that it should be reserved for people that have symptoms. Um, though COVID-19 can be spread asymptomatically without any evident symptoms, uh, because of lack of capacity currently, they're prioritizing people that do have symptoms. And so there's also another risk that if you do go to these testing sites, you could perhaps end up contracting COVID-19 from someone that is also there. Uh, the, te- the rates of infection have dropped at testing sites in past days. Originally, at its peak, it was around 11%. Now it's dropped around 4.1% as of yesterday. Um, and they were talking about just, uh, for example, out of every 28 or so people, there might be like eight that were positive. And again, just there was concern that because people were lining up in the mornings, there would be crowds and this would make it easy to, for COVID-19 to spread. Uh, there was a recent case in the past few days, for example, of a reporter that actually ended up uh, becoming COVID positive because she was conducting interviews at these tea parties. And so I'm trying to avoid that, just to stay in the comfort of my home, home for now. Well, first of all, Brian, take take care. Obviously, you're in a dangerous hotspot. Uh, I'm I'm actually here in Taichung, where we've had less than 10 cases in this outbreak. Uh, we did have a big outbreak uh, just south of us uh, in Zhanghua, uh, where a woman who was dubbed the Grape Mother uh, visited Wanhua and then came down uh, back to back to Zhanghua, attended uh, wedding uh, a wedding party and. That led to an outbreak which is uh, heading on 60 people now. It's 50-some-odd people. Um, but at this point right now, you know, the, sort of the view here from central Taiwan is we're doing fairly well. If you look at the case counts that are coming out, they're still primarily in Taipei, New Taipei, bleeding in a little bit into Geelong and to Taoyuan. Outside of the outbreak in uh, Zhanghua, generally speaking, Taichung has had less than 10 cases, so in Nanto's had none. So central Taiwan, actually, things are looking still reasonably well-contained. 
Now, in the in the Great Mother outbreak down here, um, thirteen over thirteen hundred people were uh, tested uh, as a result of contact with this one individual uh, who, again, who visited Wanhua and. So they've been on it pretty quickly now. There was a, a, a swift up. Uh, a, a, there was a big boost. It, it, it went up to 22 pretty quickly. Then there was a single day where 28 people were added, and then yesterday there was only six. And I think that has a lot to do with because they they did the contact tracing and all the people who attended the wedding party and all of that. They did all the testing and largely caught most of the people who were sick who had been infected from that outbreak in a single day. So it jumped from 22 to 50 in a single day, and then the next day there was six. So I'm a little bit hopeful that today the number won't increase by much in Zhonghua or in Taichung. And Brian, what about this disinformation from China and, and, and people on the interweb and on social media basically putting false information out there. Do you think that's a major concern for the government? That's a question. I think particularly among elderly groups, uh, it's quite, they are quite vulnerable to this information. I think right now, too, because there is chaos, um, people are just kind of grasping for stalls sometimes. And so people do look on the internet for sorts of information. And sometimes it actually does surprise me what is out there and how widely it gets circulated. Uh, for example, just tips on mask wearing that. You'll have these widely shared tips shared, for example, even among my family's fan group. And this actually turns out to be misinformation or disinformation. This is not how you correctly wear a medical mask, for example. Um, regarding China, I think there's a lot of pressure points and China can apply here. Uh, for example, with regards to vaccines, the fact that uh, the uh, China's offering access to vaccines if you comply with their political will or they will threaten to cut off your access to Chinese vaccines if you do not. Um, similarly, China is alleging the side administration is hiding the real numbers for COVID-19, which this has been a repeating theme of Chinese information over the pandemic so far. Um, I think that if the Thai administration is uh, able to act quickly and prevent these uh, so-called infodemics from becoming widely spread enough, uh, it can be dealt with. I think that just so long as central channels for communication are maintained, um, this can be dealt with. But I think actually what's more uh, hard to deal with is misinformation that's not of Chinese origin, just from people panicked on the Internet and they just spread news uh, in panic, thinking that this is real or because they're just very feel fearful at present and that makes them much more susceptible to misinformation. And so this is harder to deal with. And I think that uh, centralizing the channels for information distribution, such as having these daily press conferences or having a line uh, account in which you're issuing information about the developing situation is very helpful. But at the same time, there's always going to be these people that are disbelieving of the government and believe these random pictures they see online of, for example, just text paired with an image. Uh, because sometimes people believe what they want to believe rather than what is actually going on, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think Brian's right. I think actually, the you know, while China does have a lot that they can do to try and uh, and disrupt the situation, and they, they have a history of doing this, of course, um, and if you look on the Global Times, of course, they're, you know, promoting the line that uh, the COVID outbreak is the fault of the DPP, essentially. Um, the, uh, but fundamentally, it is, uh, and I agree with, with Brian, that this is uh, primarily the local, locally, the local spread. Uh, it's the local people panicking. It's the local people that uh, is a little bit harder to control. You can kind of predict what's going to come out of China, and a lot of it sort of has their fingerprints all over it. But you, you'll see a lot of situations here uh, where you'll have an individual spreading, you know, for example, in your you know, a local, say, Facebook group devoted to your area. And there'll be a lot of people on that, and somebody will come out with some panicked 
uh, a message that, oh, uh, this vendor went to Wanhua and is spreading the disease. And this is not true, but this comes up a lot. And, and it's in locally based, because there's a lot of lo- uh, uh, Facebook groups which are dedicated to individual areas. Um, and the, you see these spread. There, there's been a case in Qingshui here in Taichung. There's been a case in Nanto. Uh, and you, there, previously there were ones in Zhanghua. And so what you get is these, these individual people coming out with disinformation or maybe they heard something wrong and passed it on or sometimes they're just making it up or... And the, that's what spreads, and often because it, it's credible to a lot of people because it's coming from somebody in their locale, and it's somebody who obviously is. This isn't a Chinese disinformation agent. This is your typical normal Joe from around the block. And when they're saying that somebody has con- contracted the disease and spreading it, or in Nanto, somebody was saying that, oh, you, you know, it has something to do with somebody riding a bicycle without a mask, getting fined 15,000 NT. You get these rumors going out there, and the and they spread much more effectively, I think, than the Chinese intentional disinformation. So, Donovan, you, you don't think this information coming from here in, in, within Taiwan on these Facebook pages and other social media pages is basically intentionally aimed at disinformation? It's just people getting the wrong end of the stick and reporting things that aren't quite factual. Yeah, I, 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 I think in most cases it's, it's not intentional. I, it, well, in some cases it could be intentional and it's, they're simply expressing their fears. Uh, in other cases, they are misinterpreting things or over-interpreting things. Um, you know, so I, I don't. I, I, what I, I think what the line is is that, and I think in a lot of cases, they're not so much intentionally trying to spread misinformation. Sometimes they are, but in a lot of cases, they're just being idiots, frankly. So, Brian, no, no massive fifth column in Taiwan spreading in misinformation here, just people making mistakes. I think it's a combination because I think, for one, uh, there is a long-standing issue with Taiwanese media that there are very poor fact-checking practices. During this COVID-19 pandemic, during this outbreak, there has still continued to be the same practices of poor fact-checking. Uh, so then you'll have television outlets, newspapers, etc., just actually looking at PTD posts and, cred- and quoting this as a credible source about what's going on. And so oftentimes you have the questions that come up during the ECC briefings that are actually just taken from rumors on the Internet. And sometimes it's generally correct, but sometimes this actually just ends up, I think, wasting government officials' time because this is not credible and just what is on the Internet. Um, and just, and I think uh, that's, there's a lot, that's the issue, that just there's not the, issue, the practice of fact-checking. Uh, social media accounts are sometimes taken as true and so forth. Um, but I think what is more uh, hard to deal with is that because of political contestation in Taiwan, the different political camps will latch on to narratives that are convenient for what they claim is necessary for the pandemic right now. Uh, for example, the KMT, someone like Sean Lian, for example, was claiming on Facebook yesterday in a post that was widely shared uh, that the lockdown measures are not effective, that the only thing that can solve this in long term is vaccines. And that may be right. However, the point of actually advocating that is to claim effectively that 
the uh, DCP is unable to make, get vaccines, that it's not doing enough to get vaccines because of uh, uh, Chinese interference. If the KMT were in power, this interference would not be happening. And so then, for example, in the New York Times even, you'll have a medical expert quoted from the University of Taichung that's advocating for lockdowns of Wanghua currently at this late stage of the pandemic, in which, for example, there are now more cases in, coming out of New Taipei daily oftentimes than Wanghua. Uh, for example, yesterday, Zhong, there's the same number as in uh, Zhonghua as in Wanghua. And so it's quite a bit late to do that. And this is, I think, more just a means to attack the DPP, claiming that you need to have quick, effective measures such as lockdown, rather than an actual sane medical advice about what is possible to do at this stage in the game. And so I think this is the kind of thing that is harder to deal with and, and people need to be careful of. And talking of be- people being careful, Donovan, of course, face mask violations. Have you seen many people in Taichung not wearing face masks? No, actually. Uh, I've seen a couple of people inside uh, my building complex, but leaving my building complex, uh, no. Uh, everybody's been wearing a face mask. People have been complying with uh, you know, writing out the little forms using the QR codes when you go into the 7-Eleven. Um, and, uh, it, 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 but the good news is it seems like everybody is very compliant, but nobody's panicking. And that's the, the sense that I'm getting uh, in this area is that most people are kind of in a, we, 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 we should do this just in case rather than they're filled with fear or panic. But they're all, I have, you know, walking out in the streets, it's been days since I've seen somebody outside without a face mask. Of course, the maximum fine, Donovan, for not wearing a face mask outside is 15,000 NT. Do you think this is enough, or do you think maybe it should be slightly more? Well, it's a range, actually, from 3,000 to 15,000. And I, I think it really it really needs, to, you know, I think that a judge should be, I, I think that that's a reasonable amount for your average person. Uh, your average person doesn't make that much. That can be, you know, as much as half a month's salary for someone. I think that's pretty severe. Obviously, if you're very wealthy and well off, then that fine's not going to mean anything. But I think for the average person, a 15,000 NT fine is a pretty serious hit. Now, in a lot of cases, you know, it, 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 I think a lot of it depends on the context. And that's why I think it's reasonable to have a range from 3,000 3, to 15,000. For example, if I'm riding on the scooter, I might pull down the mask. Am I technically in violation? Yes. But if I'm, you know, I'm very socially distanced from everybody. So it's not something that's going to impact anybody. As soon as you get near anybody or near any other people, you definitely want to have the mask on. So if there's a, a, such you know a violation like that, then you might be looking at three thousand NT, which is still a serious hit for your average person. So I, I think the fine structure is 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 pretty serious. I think your average person will take that quite seriously. And of course, Brian. Of course, no one is not wearing a mask in Wanhua. Actually, that's not the case. So as uh, as soon as I leave my building, for example, I'll spot at least ten people not wearing masks, and they're all elderly people. And so this is one of the things that's actually a little bit concerning. Uh, and Wanha does look as though it's oftentimes younger people that are taking this much more seriously. I think that a lot of the elderly are just sort of like, oh, whatever, it's happening, and I will just go on with my life. Uh, Wanha is known for being a little chaotic sometimes. We have a lot of people crossing uh, with on red lights, uh, just moving into traffic without even bothering to look at the cars um, and so forth. And just uh, you'll hear fights, for example, from where I'm living and, and that sort of thing. 
uh, because of the thing across from these tea parlors in which there's also some gang activity. And so I think particularly a lot of the elderly people are still out there smoking and shooting beetle nut and so forth. For example, my building, although there's signs saying not to smoke indoors, there's constant smoking indoors and there's still smoke everywhere. And when I go outside, I see all these older people smoking or chewing beetle nut and so forth. Um, so that's concerning, and I'm not sure that there's actually the ability to find that many people. Um, and so there have been uh, thousands of, of cases of this uh, so far in which people are fined by the police. But sometimes I'm not sure this has a deterrent effect. It's actually too widespread to enforce in that sense. Uh, but I think in terms of that, Taiwan does have this very uh, tabloidy culture of having all this dash cam footage and people are doing bad behavior and just making it way into the news. And so this sort of culture of shame is sometimes helpful, I think, in driving people to wear masks outdoors. Uh, the question is then for elderly people who might not be paying as much attention and just sort of don't care, will this actually be effective? And so that's a question to me. Um, it, it definitely is a case that, that the infection rate in Moho is going down, so that's relieving. At the same time, looking at a lot of behavior around me, I think that I see a lot of people who are not actually changing their behavior because of the pandemic. Um, there's not a sense of crisis or uh, apocalypse in Wanfa, but maybe there should be more, which is paradoxical. So you don't think the Taipei police should have a police action and just bombard Wanhua with, like, arrests and fines? Actually, I wonder if that would actually, uh, the news of that would spread. I think that this, the police also don't have enough manpower for that because it's, it's a large area. They have to cover a lot of ground and so forth. And there's a lot of tasks they're juggling with right now. For example, conducting inspections of uh, KTVs and other uh, nightclub-like establishments and, and so forth uh, that are in the area or just uh, uh, trying to distribute medical supplies to the homeless population um, just enforce that there are not people gathering in large groups and that sort of thing. I think that Waha is very large and it's hard for them to cover all that ground. And so I think that's another issue, actually. I mean, the police uh, station for the local area is located right across from where all these tea parlors are. It's on the same street that I live on, actually. And so I can see this as well. And uh, that's also a concern, too, that they're also at risk of being infected because they are so close to the epicenter of all this. Anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and we talked about a sudden power outage last Friday, the day after it occurred, but there was another one this Monday, which, needless to say, didn't boost public faith in the state generator Thai power, nor did it help the government in promoting its energy policies, especially with a referendum on whether to start the fourth nuclear power plant on the cards and pending in August. Now, speaking the day after the latest power outage, the Cabinet announced that Premier Su Jing-chung had ordered Economics Minister Wang Meihua to review the island's electricity supply, scheduled system repairs and emergency response measures. The ministry has also given the economics minister a week to submit a planned improvement package. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen, meanwhile, took to her Facebook page to say she was extremely sorry for the outages. And she went on to say that Thai Power must thoroughly investigate and report to the public on the causes of the two power outages, as well as the current status of the island's power supply. Although Thai Power has said that Monday's power outage was initiated due to a surge in electricity demand, the company has been a bit sketchy about providing any specific information on what caused that surge or how big it was. But that wasn't enough anyway to stop the opposition lawmakers and government critics from calling for the economics minister to resign and also slamming the government's energy policies. So, Donovan, of course, with people staying at home now, the schools are all closed, more people are at home because of the coronavirus. This is not a good time for Thai Power to be having outages. And, of course, like I said, there's a referendum on whether to start the nuclear power plant coming up. Yes. Um... <laughs> 
And there's so much to go into here. Um, on the one, uh, one thing is that the grid system in Taiwan is clearly dysfunctional. Um, the, it's been, and this has been a problem going back into the 90s. You might remember when a, pi, a single pylon went down in Nanto and it took out power across the country. And of course, that was right after Lee Dong Hui's uh, special state to state comments regarding relations with China. So a lot of people thought this was intentional sabotage. And it really does genuinely look like Taiwan's power grid can be toppled really with. Uh, pretty much the smallest uh, amount of sabotage or small accidents. And this keeps happening. The first power outage over the last week was a, they call, they blamed it on human error, and it was at a, a power plant in Kaohsiung, which only made up something like 2-3% of the, of the power nationally. But that was enough to trigger a wave of responses throughout the the grid in spite of the fact that they actually had enough capacity in the grid outside of that power plant to keep the power up but it triggered this response so uh, there, there's a big concern here i think is uh, is that the way that the grid system is set up in taiwan is so easily and it's so uh, so easily disrupted and it's so fragile that it goes down the same thing in 2017 Again, it was a relatively small thing, knocked out the power throughout the entire country. We don't know about what exactly they were talking about with this surge, but it smells very similar to all of these uh, past cases where they probably had the capacity, but their, the grid system was set up so poorly that it couldn't uh, adjust, it wasn't flexible enough, it, and again, it just went down. Now, this, of course, has major national security implications. If, you know, if, for example, China wanted to disrupt or cause problems for DPP government ahead of an election, this power grid is super easy to take down, um, as far as I can tell. I now, admittedly, I don't have a privileged access to what's going on behind the scenes, but considering how, <clears throat> how, it's, how easily it seems to be able to trip this up, the, this seems to be something I think that the government should be really worried about. And what even compounding my worry is they said that they wanted Thai Power to come up with a report in a week on how to fix this. This doesn't sound like something that, that could be easily planned out in just one week. This sounds like this really needs to be a long-term systemic plan to create a, a more diversified, more flexible grid and have different power sources uh, come online, which would diversify—sorry, excuse me—diversify <clears throat> and uh, allow the grid to be able to adapt to changing circumstances. And if you have a diversified uh, series of power sources, and you have a you have a local local control in different areas that's loosely connected rather than absolutely or rigidly, uh, uh, um, rigidly connected to the rest of the grid, you might be able to adjust local circumstances in such a way that the entire system wouldn't collapse. So uh, that I've, you know, I, I've called for that. Some other people have been calling for that. Um, and the good news is, is that these alternative 
sources, not necessarily the flexibility of the grid, these alternative sources are starting to come online. We're starting to see larger solar arrays. We're starting to see uh, offshore wind is finally starting to be connected to the grid off of Zhanghua. Uh, and that uh, is huge. They want to have 5.5 gigs by uh, gigawatt hours by 2025 and 15 by 2035, which is a, uh, uh, nearly three times the capacity of the Taichung power plant, which is huge. Um, now, admittedly, offshore wind, that's uh, ultimate capacity. That's not actually how much power you're going to actually get um, because, of course, the wind sometimes doesn't blow. But the point being is that if they do get up to the 5.5, the 10, and the 15 the, the, of that, that will eventually be, even when the wind is not blowing very strong, it will be bigger than the Taichung power plant. So, and, and those wind turbines, there's a whole bunch of them. It's, you know, it's very difficult to, dis- if they plan their grid well, if one of those goes down, that doesn't disrupt the power. You know, any single one of those wind t- turbines, you'd have to remove the trans- maybe a transmission line or something in the grid itself to, to bring that all offline. So the question is, will they be planning the grid when they integrate in all of these different new sources of power in such a way that it is very, very hard to disrupt? And, you know, something that happens in Kaohsiung shouldn't be turning off the power in Taoyuan. And, you know, these, all these different sources of power should be able to remain online and not all cut off because of one accident in one small locale, in one small power source in one location. So hopefully they will rebuild the grid in such a way or restructure it in such a way that this kind of thing won't happen going forward. So Brian, Donovan, sounds like Donovan Brian is looking for a job at Thai Power. <laughs> yeah, so I think this does not add to uh, Thai Power's uh, reputation in the sense that Thai Power has a frequent history of uh, mismanagement. And so this is another one of the things that Thai Power is criticized for. And so this is a case in which something that happened in one locality in Taiwan affected everybody. Um, there are some things that worked as uh, were needed. Uh, for example, that power reserved for government buildings, the military uh, hospitals, and the transportation network. But as having these sudden power outages of the entire country, this is a very bad electorally for the Thai administration. Um, but also then in terms of Thai power, uh, you have all these conspiracy theories floating around now, for example, that this is engineered because uh, Thai power itself has an interest in preserving nuclear power. Uh, or that the DPP engineered this as a way to push for the liquid natural gas terminal that they are pushing for off because of power to get passed. Um, unsurprisingly, the uh, Pan Blue camp has leverage on this to claim that there's a need for nuclear power. Um, the DPP jumped in, uh, for example, the individuals such as uh, legislator Hong Shen Han, who has a background in the environmental movement as the former uh, deputy secretary general of the Green Citizen Action Alliance. Uh, he pointed out, for example, that this is an issue not of power generation in terms of lack of power that led to the initial outage, but of power transmission and power distribution. Uh, that being said, I think the public is not really going to find that convincing. They will jump to the much more common sense conclusion that it's because of lack of power supply. Now, someone such as, such as uh, Huang Shuqiu, the convener of the current referendum on nuclear power, who is despite claiming that DPP's opposition to nuclear energy is not scientific, is oftentimes not very scientific himself, uh, most emphatically claiming that every household in Taiwan should have a bottle of nuclear waste in their houses to equally share the burden of nuclear waste. Uh, he claimed, for example, that the government was making up false statistics. He looked at their website and saw that there was sufficient power supply and claimed that this was a false statistic on the website, that the government was lying to the public. And this was not the case, as claimed by uh, the 
members of the DPP, uh, because of the fact that this is not power of, uh, it's also not an issue of inadequate power supply, but because this wasn't being sent across to Taiwan because of the issues of the power grid. And so I think this is a, this kind of narrative we jumped on. One can see more disinformation. Um, What's concerning, though, is as raised with the possibility for sabotage, uh, was brought up an example with Li Dongfei in, in the 1990s. Uh, what's happening now, then, is that it's much easier, I think, for China to actually carry this out, these kind of acts of sabotage through cyber attacks because of the fact that uh, power systems across the world are using software that is vulnerable to attacks and sometimes they're not the best security practices at uh, vital infrastructure. And so we know that China does actually have these capacities. That also has led to some uh, conspiratorial speculation that perhaps China engineered this. I mean, that remains to be seen. It's hard to say, but whatever the case, uh, now I think it's very clear what the weak points of the Taiwan power grid are. For example, just that there are so many issues with the power plant. Well, perhaps if you're looking for somewhere to attack, that might actually be a good place to start. And you can also learn a lot about power grid based on how a government kind of restarts things, how it puts things back together. And it's not actually that hard to gather information about someone's power grid as a civilian in Taiwan. And so that information, I would assume, China does actually have. And so this raises a number of national security concerns as well, in addition to, for example, that it affects uh, the residents of Taiwan or that there's a potential spook manufacturing away from Taiwan because of these frequent power outages, uh, particularly with con uh, attention on Taiwan and its, its increased uh, Taiwan centrality to global semiconductor manufacturing, this has been seen to Taiwan's benefit in that the world is reliant on Taiwan. And so this disincentivizes uh, China from attacking Taiwan because it itself is reliant on Taiwanese manufacturing. But if these companies start getting spooked and decide to move elsewhere to move out of Taiwan, then this removes this advantage Taiwan has, perhaps when, uh, saving off actually a possible Chinese invasion. And so I think this, this issue actually is, is, uh, touches on a lot of sectors. Um, it is a, a very deeply rooted issue in Taiwan society. And on that rather ominous note, before we go this week, the island's first fully professional basketball league wrapped up its inaugural season on Tuesday after only four games were played in the finals due to the domestic coronavirus concerns and the Taipei Fubon Braves were crowned plus league champions with the league saying it opted to declare the Braves the winners after discussions with both teams based on concerns. It will be extremely difficult to hold the remaining games amid the current coronavirus climate. And I spoke with Plus League broadcaster Ryan Chen about the season, the fans, the games and the league's future. Good evening, Ryan. Good evening, Gavin. So the Plus League has wrapped up its season, albeit prematurely. And of course, it got a lot of fans going to the stadiums, which I think might have surprised many people. Well, maybe, but there are a number of signs that we thought were working in our favour. Um, the three ingredients I kind of thought of was, first, that there's home and away teams for the first time in Taiwan basketball history, so teams represent their own city. Number two, there's a lot of golden era players who are actually back in Taiwan after spending their prime of their careers abroad. We're talking about guys like Amingo, Yang Jingming, we're talking about Zhong Wenxing, or maybe like Wesley Wu Daihao, or especially Beast, Ling Zijie on the Braves. Now the third thing is that our boss, Charles Chen, is a social media icon in Taiwan, and he knows what grabs people's attention. So those were all factors that we thought were, were really working in our favor and got the plus league going. I mean, what was the average fan turnout at the stadiums? Was it about seven, 8,000? Well, it's not quite that high. I did the math, and if you bring it all together, it's about 5,577 fans per game. That's all the stadium capacity combined and all the fans coming in. So... And it works out to be, well, actually, it does work out to be 83% of our stadium capacity, which is pretty solid. Now, granted, we've only played on the weekends, so in the future, building off into playing weekday games will be another challenge. Ryan, what about the fan reaction at the stadiums? 
You know, it's been very supportive. The teams have all figured out their own ways to sell their teams, especially to the local fan base. And so generally we found that the fan base has become attracted to their home teams, and there's also made the league pretty popular itself. There were some rough patches. There's, of course, officiating mistakes. Officials are human, too. And we found that the bylaws of the league aren't that complete. So there's a fair amount of criticism of our league, but frankly, it's been pretty overwhelming what, what fans had to say and how thankful they are that they have professional basketball to watch here on the island. And did you see a lot of the fans that attended the games coming from the cities where the teams are based? Or did you get sort of a, a Taipei fan maybe liking the Shinju Lioners or somewhere? Well, there's a number of crossovers. There's definitely a strong amount of stickiness within each um, region and territory that the teams um, represent themselves. And there's a fair bit of traveling toward the end of the season. We found that when the competition was getting tight, things were going heading towards the playoffs, the fans were traveling to the different cities to cheer on their own team. So that also helps. I mean, that helps everybody when you have away fans as well, supporting your team everywhere and boosting attendance numbers all over the place. And what what about the quality of the teams and the games? Well, the f- number one team of the league is the Taipei Fulon Braves. They won 19 out of 24 games this season. But the competition ended up being very tight in the end. The Formosa Taishin Dreamers, the Italian Pilots, and the Shinju Jeko Lioneers all ended up with, well, the first two teams with 10 wins and the, and the Lioneers with 9 wins. And so... That was the competition for the two other spots in the playoffs. So in the end, down the stretch, it was pretty good. Now, every team had their ups and downs, even in this short season. So um, fans had different times that where they were down on their teams. But there was also times that they could have been you know, on a good run and cheering for themselves. Now, it'll be interesting going forward because every team has, um, we mentioned, their veterans. And now every team has their standout rookies. Now, we're looking forward to those younger guys working into their primes and really going into what we call Dai, like those guys in the prime of their career. They don't have a lot of those in the plus league right now. Right. And, of course, what about international players? Well, those are in flux all the time because import players um, are looking for the best opportunities for themselves, rightfully so. But we saw very good quality of them across the board. The headliners from the past include... Guys like Anthony Tucker, who was an MVP of leagues um, across Asia. We have guys like Willie Warren, who made a name in the CBA. And some guys emerged, too. Like, Davon Reed is an NBA hopeful, and he did a great job for the Pilots when he was there. Um, we saw Brendan Dawson really shine with the Lioneers and lead them toward the end of the season. Um, paired up with a guy like Hashim Tabit, Defensive Player of the Year, which is pretty awesome. Um, looking across... You also got incredible athleticism and like Jaron Young and Kadeem Jack, who can dunk everything, those two guys. Or you have guys like Zaitsev, who is really tall as well, but also very sound defensively and flows well with the Braves. Well, that, those that, are some notable international, or I guess import players, we call them, and to, in our eyes, international players. Right. Are there, are there limits to the number of import players a team can have? Yeah, the Plus League set the number of import players at two per team, the idea being that they wanted the domestic players to get their chance to shine. So because with COVID, actually, they thought, well, teams couldn't get new guys in if anyone got hurt or if they weren't playing well. So 
they had the roster number to three import players, but you can only t- register two to play per game, and only one in the fourth quarter, which promotes the local and domestic players to shine through in the towards the end of the game. And that's been that's been getting good feedback as well from the fans. We'll see how that goes along. And what about the way the season ended, which was rather prematurely and not on a very good note? I mean, do you, do you think that put a bit of a dampener on the whole season? Oh, it does for sure. Heading down the stretch in the playoff series, actually, because they're, the infection already kind of was going around in Talgren. So that last game was supposed to be in Talgren, got moved down to Zonghua where they finished things off as kind of a neutral state, site competition. Then in the finals, the Braves and Dreamers were one apiece after the first few games in Taipei. Two sold-out games, incredible energy out there. And then down in Zhanghua, when they played behind closed doors, we had the first overtime in the league, which is really exciting for all of us, sure for the viewers and for us working the games. But then game four, a little bit of a uh, one-sided affair. And then during the game, we found out that pretty much all the cities and counties will be closing off bigger public events like ours, of course. Um, respectfully so, because we've got to stay safe from COVID-19. Now, le- it left the series 3-1 to the Braves over the Dreamers, and the Braves were declared the champions. They're better record in this series, better record in the regular season, but certainly it's kind of bittersweet because they didn't get their championship moment, right? On the floor, raising the trophy, confetti coming down, maybe doing laps around the court. Mm. So... Maybe some things to some some things that were left imperfect, but granted, for how far we've come, it's probably an okay result, and we're already moving on, looking forward to the next season. And what about TV viewership? Yeah, I looked it up, and the biggest thing we kind of monitor is um, is our YouTube numbers, which I saw that we get about two hundred fifty thousand views on our Mandarin broadcast, and about twenty thousand views for the English broadcast on YouTube within the first 24 or 48 hours of the um, game getting tipped off. Now the average TV rating for those who are interested is 0.1 per game for our, um, the Mingsu FTV and a 0.07 for Momo TV. We have a little bit ways to go in these departments, but we did get as high as um, 0.22 for the uh, Garrett Kinley's retirement game in Taipei. That was pretty awesome. And what can fans expect next season? More teams. There's rumors there's going to be more teams. Yep, those rumors are true, but we are still in the confirmation stage. As of right now, there are two groups who have proposals to have new teams, one in Kaohsiung and one in New Taipei. Now, by the end of May, the league will evaluate the progress those groups have made and decide whether to accept them as new members of our league. They need to satisfy criteria like um, proving their capital situation, their financial plans, how they plan to market their teams, and of course, probably most importantly, what kind of basketball operation they're going to be running. Right, of course. So there could be zero, one, or two new teams in the season next fall. That's the main, that's like headline thing, but something to key in on is the plus league draft that's coming up. There was none last year. The teams could sign rookies as free agents, um, but the draft has its own benefits, too. You have guaranteed rookie contracts, and that, do, that does two things. It builds hype up for the players, but it also kind of forms narrat- narratives and speculation about what teams should do. But two, it guarantees that players are got to sound a 
start to their careers in basketball. And how, how do you think it's affecting the Super Basketball League? Well, the Super Basketball League will hopefully continue in its own form. They were unable to get their finals even started off, so it was just declared yesterday that there will be a combined championship between the uh, Taiwan Beer and the Luxgen basketball groups. Um, it's hard to say. There's definitely basketball out there for either young or we call Zongsun Dai, the middle prime guys, and the guys in the later of their career. So it'll be interesting to see how the players' movement will go because every team is trying to improve themselves and maybe trying to find players who fit their system best, um, even if the talent is about the same. Don't know what to say about how things will shake out because it's all up in the air, but two new teams for us is certainly a good sign for our league. That was me in conversation with Plus League broadcaster Ryan Chen. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week. This week, and I've been joined on the telephone today by Brian Hugh. G'day. And from Taijong, also on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And great to be back. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.